Good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning, and I thank you for coming, joining us for worship here at Ivy Creek on this very special day for us. And I want to just echo what Pastor Ted earlier said and just make sure that you know uh, you're invited back this evening. We're going to have a wonderful time of music. Uh, man, the choir did an outstanding job this morning, and so did our orchestra. They were just good. Let's just thank them in their time. I'm excited about tonight because they are unveiling a, uh, a, an anthem that was written specifically for Ivy Creek's 100th anniversary celebration. And so I have not heard it intentionally. I've stayed away from it so that I didn't. So I'm going to hear it for the first time tonight with all of you. And so uh, I'm excited about that. And I'm looking forward to, uh, to getting to hear that. And so uh, Dr. Robert White from uh, the Georgia Baptist Mission Board will also be here with us tonight as well as a couple of former pastors. And uh, we're, we're going to have a good time. So I encourage you to come back this evening. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you please take them? Turn with me to the Old Testament, uh, back to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you go back to Joshua, just keep turning to the right, and you'll come to Judges, and then you'll come to Ruth, and then you'll be there in 1 Samuel, and we'll be in chapter 17. While you're making your way there, no doubt you've heard about the man who went on a hike and he got up, he came upon a cliff. He got a little too close to the edge and he tumbled over the edge of the cliff. On his way down, as it happened, there was a tree that was sticking out of the side of the cliff and he was able to grab onto that tree and it held his weight. And so there he was, suspended between certain death and the top of that cliff as he hung there by both of his arms. And, and uh, as all of the, the little rocks continued to fall past him, finally he decided that he might as well see if there was anybody out there who could help him. So he, he yelled out, is there anybody there? There was this voice that came, yes, I am God and I am here. Do you believe in me? Yes, yes, I believe in you. And the voice said, well, if you believe in me, then there's nothing that you have to fear. Put your trust in me and just let go of the branch. There was a long pregnant pause of silence. And then the question came back, is there anybody else up there? <laughs> I, I think we all do laugh at that story, but the fact of the matter is, it's a nervous laughter. If you really think about that story, it ought to make you laugh a little nervously. The reason being is that that story actually draws out a, an issue that all of us face. It's the issue of faith. And a story like that causes us to ask ourselves if we truly believe in a God who tells us to abandon our fear and trust in Him. This morning, we are going to examine one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. In fact, people who never go to church and have probably never picked up a Bible in their life know the story that we are going to look at and examine this morning. They are familiar with the narrative of the story of David and Goliath. However, it is my contention that even though this is a very popular and a very well-known story in the Bible, it is also a very misunderstood story in the Bible. In fact, most of the time when, when David and Goliath are mentioned together, it's nearly always in the context of, of human courage and bravery in the face of overwhelming odds. We use the story of David and Goliath to always typically talk about those, uh, those, those victories that come that are the most amazing ones because someone who was not supposed to win actually wins against the person who was supposed to, but they lost instead. We use the story of David and Goliath to talk about that 
And as such, it's often told as an illustration of how you and I can overcome overwhelming odds to gain victory over whatever giants we may be facing in our own lives. But I believe that that interpretation entirely misses the point of the narrative. In fact, I will contend that this story is about faith and about the faith that we must have and in whom that faith must be placed. The New American Commentary, when writing on this particular passage, says this. It says that this particular passage in 1 Samuel 17, that the narrative is not primarily a story about human courage and effort. Instead, it is about the awesome power of a life built around bold faith in the Lord. I really could not agree more. Therefore, my argument is that rather than this story being about David and his courage in facing Goliath, it is actually a story about God and about his power to deliver us from our enemies. So with that as an understanding, let's, let's dive into the text today. But before we do, I want us to pray and I just want us to ask God's blessing to give us spiritual eyes and, and spiritual hearts of understanding this morning. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to be able to open your word. Now, I pray that as we do that, that you would help us to see things clearly from your perspective. See things from the perspective that Scripture holds to us. And then help us, Father, to apply these truths to our lives. That we may leave here as people who are not burdened down with fear and with defeat. But rather that we are emboldened to, to stride forward in everything that you have given us to do in our lives. Because we know that the battle belongs to you. I pray this in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. 1 Samuel 17 is a very long chapter. You know that it is my, my, my normal desire to read everything to you. Time simply prevents me from being able to do that this morning. So I'm going to encourage you to go home and read this chapter for yourself. And just so that you know, I did read it all uh, for the Wednesday night Bible study. And if you can't, if you, when you finish reading this chapter, if your blood's not pumping and your blood pressure's up a little bit and your heart rate's not, you didn't read it right. So go back and do it again. Because it is good stuff. It is, it is, it is the, some of the, the best reading that you will do. But to set the stage for you, the chapter opens up by telling us about the Israelite army that is under the purview of, of King Saul and how they are uh, fixing to go into battle with their perennial enemy, the Philistines. And if you can just imagine it in your mind's eye, two mountain ridges, uh, one on this side and one on this side and you have the Israelites they're all arrayed in their battle and they're ready to go to battle and over here you have all the Philistines and they're doing the same thing and in the middle you have the Valley of Elah that is the setting for this story and and that's where we pick up in verse 4 let's begin reading there and a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath whose height was six cubits and a span and he had a bronze helmet on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels and a shield bearer went before him. This, this text does not describe Goliath as a giant, it doesn't have to. It basically tells you everything you need to know about him, that he was a man who rose head and shoulders above anyone else around him. He was a mountain of a man. He, he, was, 
he, he would have attracted much attention due to his enormous size. The, 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 the way that the text is written here and the, the, the way to interpret his height from our understanding today, he would have been around nine feet tall, nine feet six inches tall, taller than anything we probably can imagine. But he also wore heavy armor and weapons with him. He wore 126 pounds of chain mail over him, which would have been his armament. And he had a, a 16 pound spearhead. That's, that's the weight of the head of the spear, 16 pounds. When, when the narrator presents this to us, you can begin to understand just how massive this man was, how intimidating he was to see and to look at. But it's right here very early on in this chapter that we need to remind ourselves of a very key verse in the Old Testament. In fact, it's a key verse that not only comments on the entire Old Testament, it comments on this story and it comments on everything that happens in our lives. It comes from the previous chapter in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. If you'll remember, it was, it was the prophet Samuel who had gone out to uh, anoint the next king of Israel because Saul, the, the glory of the Lord, had departed from him. And when he went to this little town of Bethlehem and to this man's house whose name was Jesse, Jesse trotted out all seven of his sons and none of those worked. And, and the first one was named Eliab and Samuel saw him and he was impressed with Eliab. He was tall, dark, and handsome. He was everything that you'd want in a king. But just about the time he was ready to anoint Eliab, God said to him in 1 Samuel 6, verse 7, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature. He goes on to say, For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That verse, back in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, is actually presents a principle for us that repeats itself throughout Scripture, all the way throughout the Old Testament, even into the New Testament, and even up to the very moment in which you and I are living right now. It is a principle that tells us that as humans, we don't see things the way that God does. His evaluations are different than ours. God is not impressed with the same things that you and I are impressed with. We tend to be impressed with big bank accounts. We tend to be impressed with people of physical size and stature. We tend to be impressed with folks that have large muscles and all. God is not impressed with the same things that tend to impress us. And this text tells us that, and that becomes very evident when we see this big giant Goliath who comes down from the Philistines as their champion, and he comes onto the scene. But having understood that, that helps us understand the next couple of verses, beginning in verse 8. Read with me. Then he stood, that's Goliath, and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. And if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. That's an interesting perspective. It's a proposal that, that Goliath makes. It's a winner-take-all fight where one of them fight one of them. In other words, Goliath, their champion, fights the champion of Israel. And whoever wins that one-on-one -on -one fight determines the who wins the entire battle. Now, we've already heard about the Philistine champion. Let's hear who the Israelite champion should have been. His name is Saul. He's the leader. He's the king of Israel. In fact, he was the one who 
uh, based upon his job description, according to 1 Samuel 8, verse 20, his job was to go out before Israel and fight their battles. That was the job description giving, given to King Saul. Not only that, not only was that his job description, but according to the description of him physically, he was the giant of Israel. As a matter of fact, in chapter 9, verse 2, we read not only that he was a handsome man, but also that from his head and shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So he was, he should have been the one to go and fight for Israel. He should have been their champion. But as we noticed back here in verse 17, for whatever reason, the, the Goliath comes down and issues the challenge, but no one goes to meet him. As a matter of fact, if you read further down to, to verse 16, Goliath came out on 40 consecutive days and twice a day begged somebody to come and fight him. And all the while, Saul, the leader of Israel, the man who should have been their champion, stayed in his tent. In fact, verse 11 tells us that Goliath dismayed Saul and his army and made them all greatly afraid. Now, with a vision of a terrified and dispirited Saul in our minds, the narrator tells us that another character comes on the scene. Beginning in verse 12, read with me. Now David was the son of the Ephratite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse and who had eight sons. And the man was old and advanced in years in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went into the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. I hope you noticed the contrast there. Goliath, his, he, when he's presented to us, it's his physical features that are highlighted for us in order to impress us with his size and with his abilities. And, but when David is, is mentioned, nothing is said about his stature, nothing is said about his strength or his military uh, abilities at all. He is just simply introduced as the youngest of eight sons of Jesse from the Bethlehem, uh, from the tribe of Judah, and, and that he tends his father's sheep. That's all that we're told about him. He is, and in doing so, he is both the antitype of, of King Saul and he is also the antitype of Goliath, who is Israel's enemy. Yet, from this point forward, if we were looking at it from, from a, a, a filmmaker's perspective, the person behind the camera never takes the camera's view off of David for the rest of this chapter. Everywhere David goes, the camera follows him. All the way from the, from the pasture fields there in Bethlehem to the battlefield there in the Valley of Elah, the camera follows David. The text goes on to tell us that David leaves his father's sheep and goes to take some supplies to his brothers and to greet them on the battlefield. And that's where we pick up. Look with me as we come to the, the point here. Goliath is out spewing his venom against Israel. He's begging someone to come fight him. He's been doing this for 40 days. And on the 41st day and the last day of his life, he does it again. And that's where we pick up in verse 26. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him saying, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? 
And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, the oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? He's a great older brother, and he just plays the typical older brother picking on the youngest brother. He says, I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? And then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. You might find it interesting. Verse 26. Verse 26 comprised the first recorded words of David in the entire Bible. It doesn't mean that David didn't speak before here. He obviously had. But verse 26 are the first recorded words of David. Now, we know that David went on to write many of the Psalms that we have. And much was written about things that he said. But verse 26 are the first recorded words. And what's interesting is that verse 26 offers us the first biblical theological perspective of the battle that is going to take place there in Elah. David's question really brings to mind some key questions or key ideas that apparently had, had been lacking from everyone's thinking prior to this point. Here's a couple of those key things. Number one, Goliath was a reproach to Israel. David says, he is a reproach to us. He is, he is something that is an embarrassment to us as a people. Secondly, when he refers to the giant, he only refers to him as an uncircumcised Philistine. That's an important point. You see, the issue of circumcision was an outward sign that, that was used to depict who those were who were part of the covenant of God, who, who fell under the protection of God's love and His covenant love for His people. And so the, the sign of circumcision was given to the Israelites. David is saying, this giant is an uncircumcised blasphemer. He's outside the covenant of God. He's a reproach to us. He is not under God's protection. And then thirdly, he says, the God of Israel was not some idol. He's a living God. Do you see the point that's there? David comes up, if God is a living God who loves us and who has given us his protection, and that we are the ones who stand underneath that umbrella of his protection, then why hasn't somebody gone out there and shut this blasphemer's mouth? Because he is a reproach to our people. Up to this point in the story, you begin to recognize that everything has been a godless interpretation of the events. David wants to know, doesn't having a living God, doesn't that make a difference? I would ask the same thing of us. Doesn't, doesn't the fact that we serve a living God, shouldn't that make a difference in how we behave and how we live and how we act? That brings me to this point. You see, King Saul and the Israelite army, they were dismayed. They were afraid of Goliath because they thought he was invincible. David simply saw him as an uncircumcised blasphemer. And, it, and his point is simply that a living God who stands majestically behind everything that happens to us in this life gives a whole new view of things. And that actually is the first point that I want you to see on your outline. The first point that I want to draw from this text is simply this. Without a proper worldview that recognizes God as the sovereign, living ruler over all creation, you and I will live our lives in fear and defeat. That will be what describes how we live. We will live in fear. 
we will live in defeat because we do not recognize that God ultimately stands behind everything that we face in our lives. And I believe that serves as a pretty good summary of the first section of this text. After all, as I mentioned before, verse 11 says that Saul and his army were dismayed and greatly afraid. Verse 24 says, all the men of Israel, when they saw Goliath, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. Now, what that means for you and me is that if we don't recognize that God stands behind everything, if that's not our starting point in life, if we don't have a proper worldview of who God is, then everything else in our life is going to show that. Everything in my life, everything in your life, everything in the life of this church requires that we begin with the proper worldview that recognizes that God is the sovereign living God and the ruler of all things. Such a worldview will determine what we do with our lives, it will determine what we do with our money. It will determine what, what goals and objectives that we want to achieve in our life are. It will determine whether we witness to our friends and to our neighbors about the gospel. All of these things will reveal what we really believe about God. If we live in constant fear, then we are declaring to the onlooking world that our confidence is not in a God who is sovereign and is in charge of all the things. If we seldom act upon biblical truth, then our lives will show that the world holds greater influence over us than God does. If we shrink back from doing difficult things for God, if we fail to live lives that take a risk on who the nature of God has been revealed to us to be in the Scriptures, then we show that we believe he is weak and that he is distant and that he is indifferent. To put it bluntly, when our faith in God is eroded, the natural result for us is to live in fear and defeat. That is exactly what Saul and the Israelite army were doing. Now, you'll notice in verse 28, we read about how David's oldest brother Eliab became angry with David. In fact, he chastises him. David responded in, by asking, is there not a cause? In effect, in effect, David is asking, do you believe that our God is the sovereign God that he claims to be and that he has always revealed himself to be? If you do, then is there not a cause for us to go out and live in light of that truth? That brings us to the next section because when he asked that question, is there not a cause, that seems to get the attention of King Saul. And and about that point is when Saul invites him to his tent. Let's pick up in verse 31. Now, when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go and fight against this Philistine, for you'd fight with him, for you are a youth, and he has been a man of war since his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep, and when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. If you can't read that and that doesn't get your blood going, you need to work about reading some more. This is good stuff. Verse 37, moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. 
And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. He made a pretty good, I mean, he must have really won him over. Go, man, I can't hold back on you. You've already argued me in this whole thing. So, but verse 38, so Saul clothed David with his armor and he put a bronze helmet on his head and he clothed him with a coat of mail and David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these for I have not tested them. So David took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand. He chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. He put them in the shepherd's bag in a pouch, which he had. And his sling was in his hand. And he drew near to the Philistine. The contrast between David and Saul here couldn't be any greater than what it is. David's this young shepherd boy. I can just imagine his face is flushed. His nostrils are flaring. He's, he's, his fists are clenched. And he's not excited because he's going and meeting King Saul. He's, he's excited because he's, he's angry over what this giant has been doing for the last 40 days. And he breaks protocol. I don't know if you realize that. He didn't wait to be spoken to when he got to the king's tent. He was the one that started the conversation. That's, that's breaking protocol. But he said, look, don't let anybody's heart fear within them. This servant will go out and fight that Philistine. Matthew Henry sums up this scene well. He says, a little shepherd come but this morning from keeping sheep has more courage than all the mighty men of Israel. Now, David might have courage, but Saul has to be the one who gives the approval. And, and after all, it is the safety and security of the nation of Israel that's at stake here because this is a winner-take-all battle. And so, by all outward appearances, what Saul saw in David was not something that would have intrigued him enough to let David go out and fight for this winner-take-all battle. The idea of a young shepherd boy standing up against a seasoned Philistine army champion was a preposterous situation at best. But remember this, man looks at the outward appearances, but God looks at the heart. David, even though, goes on to argue for himself. He says, look, lions and bears have suffered at my hand. And this blasphemer who's out there calling curses down upon Israel has now consigned himself to the same heap that the bear and the lion was consigned to. That just excites me. That just... That just puts chills up my spine. And we might think that David says that because he's cocky and because he's young and he's full of vim and vigor and he's just, he's, he's confident in himself. But notice that David takes great pains to tell Saul why this will happen and where his confidence is placed by what he says to him in verse 37. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. He will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. You see that David's confidence was not in himself. It was not in his ability to fight. It was not in his own slingshot skills. His confidence was in God, in a sovereign living God who had delivered him again and again in the past and that's what allowed him to know that his confidence could be in God for the future. That leads me to the second thing that I want you to see this morning. The second thing is this. Without a proper faith, 
that relies on the deliverance of the sovereign living God who has proven himself in the past, you and I will try to deliver ourselves and we will fail every time. Here's an important point to note. We make sure we understand. David had realized that in defending his father's sheep, that it had been God who had walked every step of the way with him. And it was that that allowed him to say, if God delivered me before, he's going to deliver me in the future. And he shows us that, that looking back in faith is what allows us to look forward in faith and to walk forward in confidence of God's deliverance because the battle is the Lord's. Brothers and sisters, it ought to be the same for you and for me. Our faith must be nurtured and strengthened by recalling and remembering how God has delivered us in the past. There's not a one of us in this room, if we truly understand our circumstances from the proper perspective, who could not stand up and testify again and again and again, this is what God has done for me. This is how he took me out of the scenario that I was in. This is how he brought me through it. This is how even when I didn't had no hope and I had no opportunity for success that God brought this about in my life. Even more, though, we have this. We have God's holy word that has been given to us. God's holy word is there to, to, to help fortify and to reinforce how faithful God has been to deliver his people time and time again throughout the centuries. God's word serves as a testimony of his faithfulness. And that coupled with the testimonies of our own lives should not only sustain us in our faith, but it should reinforce us to go forward in the battle recognizing that he will be the one who will win it for us. Now, you did notice that, that Saul said, okay, fine, you can go out, but good Lord, you can't go out in battle looking like that. Come over here. And so he goes over and he gets his arm, armor and puts it on David. Now, remember, Saul was head and shoulders above all the rest of the folks in Israel. So Charlie's with us this morning. It could be just about like Charlie going in my closet and picking some clothes out and putting on him and trying to wrap it up and saying, I'm going to go out in my daddy's uniform, you know? That's probably what it looked like. David said, I can't go out in your stuff. That, that, that. And this makes me even wonder, what good had Saul's armor done him? He'd been laid up in the tent for 40 days and hadn't bothered to put it on and go out in the battle, but now he wants to put it on David. David said, I don't need it. And he takes his staff and he takes his, the, the stones and he takes his sling and he goes out. There's a lesson here for us. The lesson is simply this. When we trust in ourselves, when we trust in the worldly means that are put out there in front of us, when we emphasize anything greater than what God is able to do through us and through his own power, then we demonstrate to the world around us and even to ourselves that the sovereign living God whom we claim to serve is not enough. That point, we're destined to fail. The, the Apostle Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and through 5. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, listen, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we must be reminded that faith and confidence in anything other than the sovereign living God who has proved himself again and again and again in the past will inevitably lead to our living, to our trusting in, in worldly things in an attempt to 
deliver ourselves and all such attempts will ultimately fail David recognized that fact and so he refused Saul's offer and he went out with what God had given him and you know the rest of the story and it's almost as if you can hear you know who Michael Buffer is he's the guy that announces all the big major boxing matches or wrestling matches and he says let's get ready to rumble and you can almost hear that rolling off of the cat in the caverns down in the valley of Elah and, and I can just imagine that cameraman and he focuses in on Saul and Saul looks worried. He focuses in on Eliab and Eliab just looks angry at David. He focuses in and he pans the Israelite army and they're scared because they're thinking this is what's going to happen. We're going to become servants to the Philistines. It pans across the way to the other side of the Philistines and man, they're just, they're happy. They got smiles on their faces and they're thinking it's fixing to be party time in Palestine, baby. We're fixing to go to the top. And they're looking at all of them. And, and it's like the, the, the camera just kind of stops and looks. And you can just see David. And he runs to the battle. I got ahead of myself. Let's read it. <laughs> David says to him, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the field that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and with spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. And so it was when the Philistine arose and came near and drew near, drew near to meet David David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag and he took out a stone and he slung it and he struck the Philistine in the forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. Suspended in time, you can just see that stone coming. And it hits its mark. And suddenly the thud that only a giant's body can make when it hits the earth resounded across that valley. And then the camera picks back up. And you see the Philistine army's smiles turn to panic as they begin to run. And then you pass back over in the Israelite army who were so afraid, their voices suddenly turn into shouts of triumph. And then you see David standing before the decapitated body of his enemy, holding his head in the air, victorious. And suddenly the, the credits begin to roll. And it is right here, brothers and sisters, right here, that we have to be very careful. Because it is right here that this text gets so misinterpreted. You see, what happens is, is that we tend to push our identity upon David at this point. In our desire to be the one who is standing victorious over our own vanquished foes, raising our own hands in victory and in triumph, we fail to remember that David, this shepherd boy from Bethlehem, is the divinely appointed forerunner of Christ. Consequently, when we see David standing victorious over this giant blasphemer named 
Goliath, we must recognize that his victory is designed to point us not to our own victories, but rather toward an even greater victory that occurred on an e to, over an even greater enemy. And that leads me to the last point that I want you to see. The third point on your outline this morning is this. A proper understanding of this text will not focus our attention on how we can defeat our own personal giants and Goliaths, but on the glory of God's salvation offered to us through Jesus Christ. The truth is, because we are human and because we are fallen, we tend to take a stance that everything that happens in this world is about us. Even when we read Scripture, we are tempted to put ourselves at the center of the story and to make ourselves the hero. But the vantage point of Scripture does not center upon us. It centers upon what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Beginning in, with the fall in Genesis in which we find that, that man's sin caused him to be banned from the Garden of Eden and placed under the curse of sin, we find that it is God who puts the plan in place to ultimately bring about man's redemption and to reconcile him to God. In fact, that is what the entire Bible is all about. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, the Bible is about who God is and about his redemptive plan to save sinners just like you and just like me. And if we begin to read scriptures that way, and if we read 1 Samuel 17 that way, then we begin to understand that David's conquest over Goliath doesn't become a call for us to be more courageous in the face of our own personal Goliaths. It is actually something so much more promising and so, something so much more beautiful. In fact, the entire episode tells us that all of Israel retreated in terror from this Philistine God's anointed king who appears weak and insignificant, he comes and he fights for his people knowing that the battle is the Lord's. David stands alone as the one in the place of the many. And through him, God works salvation for his people. And as Derek Thomas has put it, this chapter, 1 Samuel 17, is all about a battle that one man won from which the rest of Israel profited. And I want you to know that is the fact why it points us to Jesus. Because just like that, Jesus came to be the one in the place of the many. He came to fight the battles that you and I could never have fought and could never have won because we were too weak and we were too insignificant. But he was the one who came and fought for us and defeated sin, Satan, the devil, all of death. He defeated it on our behalf so that we might gain the victory. And when we see David here standing victorious over his enemy, we get a greater picture of what the Bible describes in the New Testament as when Jesus Christ came, but he died in our place. And through his death, he defeated the one who through all time death had reigned, through Satan. And not only that, but he rose again on the third day. And by his victorious resurrection, you and I are given life. You see, because of the cross and the empty tomb, Christ severed the heads of our greatest enemies and he held them up for us to see. And that leads me then to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. The message of the gospel is that we do not need to live in fear and defeat because Jesus Christ has won the battle we could never win for ourselves and he offers victory to all who will stop trusting in their own abilities and place their trust in him. 
That is the message of the good news. And brothers and sisters, if you have placed your faith in Christ and Jesus is your Lord and Savior and he is the one who has fought the battle for you and yet you are still walking around in fear and defeat this morning, then you need to be reminded of the truth of this text is that Jesus Christ, God's champion, has come to deliver you from sin and from death. And if you begin by understanding that, then you can begin to understand I can walk confidently in whatever God gives me to do because He has fought my battles for me. I have benefited by what Jesus Christ has done. But, oh, friend, if you are here and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ to be your Savior, if you have never believed upon Him and placed your faith in Him, it doesn't matter how good your life looks. It doesn't matter how strong you may be. It doesn't matter how much money you may have in the bank. It doesn't matter how well you have set yourself up for the future. If your faith, faith is not in Jesus Christ, then I want you to know you are already defeated. The message of the gospel is, is that Jesus Christ offers you grace and he offers you mercy if you will trust in him and believe upon him. I'd encourage you to go home and read 1 Samuel 17 again. Read it with fresh eyes. Read it understanding that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Because brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning.